This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, covering much of central Illinois, and now also 89.1 in DeKalb and Sycamore, and we are starting to cover some of northern Illinois as well. And we say hello to our friends up there, and we hope you enjoy listening to Catholic Spirit Radio. We're going to have a great show for you today. I'm here with my wife, Lynn, and we have a guest, uh, Carl Wenning. Uh, Carl was with us for the last couple of weeks, and uh, we're going to do a little bit more on the Christmas star. We sort of finished up on it uh, last time, and I promised that we would have uh, a little bit more on it from a different point of view, and we're going to get to that We've been gone for the last few weeks. It seems that this winter there have been some ups and downs, and we hope to be back a little more steady from now on. So yeah. at it. Between anyway. the uh, Omicron and uh, everybody getting sick in the weather, it's been unpredictable. That's for sure. Remember, we're brought to you by you, and uh, we wouldn't be able to be in existence and have our show and our station if it wasn't for all of the good people out there. So always remember that we're brought to you by you. So any donations that you can make, we can always use. If you'd like to contact us, our number is 309-807-2427. Again, that's area code 309-807-2427. Better yet, go to our website, catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. It will tell you a lot about us and how you can make a donation about our shows, and you can find out uh, how to listen to past shows on there or get our, our shows on podcast and just a lot of information there. But uh, at any rate, we talked about the Christmas star the last few weeks and uh, with Carl Winning. And we ruled out, Carl pretty much ruled out, and I think I would agree with him, the sort of natural astronomical explanations for the Christmas star and concluded that it's far more likely to be explained by the idea of Shekinah glory, that is God's power made manifest, usually in the sky with sort of an aura that, that would far better explain the Christmas star. And there are people that agree with this, and yet at the same time, there are people who do agree with that, but explain it in a different way than we did, and that's what we're going to examine today. There are some people who hold a different point of view, saying that the Christmas star could be better explained by manifestations caused by an advanced technology that may have been in existence back at that time, it could very well have been from an extraterrestrial source and uh, that it's possible that we were visited by these extraterrestrials or aliens, if you want to call them that, in such a way that uh, the things that people saw back at that time and uh, gave explanations for were explained in terms of the gods or God and were really, uh, in essence, things that we could explain now by advanced technology. And that is an explanation, 
that does deserve a hearing, and so we're going to talk about that today uh, and see if there is anything to that. And if you want uh, the, the, the proper term now, I guess, would be UFOs, or the proper term, I guess, would also would be unexplained UAP, unexplained aerial phenomena. And there have been reports of these kinds of things throughout history. You can go back and find uh, people in earlier times that have seen things in the sky, just as we do today. And uh, the explanation by some people is that these things are caused by uh, visitors not of this earth, and we will give that some consideration. So I'm going to turn the show over now to uh, our friend Carl Wenning, and uh, he will explain some of the things that he does know about this phenomena, and uh, we'll go from there. So, Carl? Very good, Bob. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be here again with you to continue this subject. It's an area we often don't get into uh, in terms of my own personal conversations with individuals. But uh, being a planetarium director for 23 years like I was uh, previously, a lot of people have asked me about the old UFO phenomenon and so on. So I want to share a little bit of that and how it relates to the Star of Bethlehem because it is a legitimate question. You know, I mentioned in our last program uh, the uh, – Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, that wonderful book by Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens uh, that talked about a guy, Jake, going back into the past after being hit over the head. And he ends up coming back to the time of King Arthur in a round table. And because he's an engineer, he takes some of his 18th, 19th century technology and essentially redevelops it right there in the 11th century. And as a result of that, he's thought to be a wizard, almost a god, because he's doing nearly miraculous things like, uh, you know, making bicycles. <laughs> you know, can you see uh, uh, Merlin the magician running around on a bicycle? It, it certainly seems to be a rather miraculous thing itself. But uh, yeah, we'll talk about that uh, all in due time here. But uh, let's uh, kind of tie this back to the Star of Bethlehem explanation because we, again, basically ruled out, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, we've ruled out, uh, you know, the old physical phenomenon. And that left us with a couple of things like, you know, the, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, as you mentioned, and even a Jewish interpretive myth called Midrash. But, you know, you can always ask this question if, in fact, the Star of Bethlehem might not have been something to do with an advanced extraterrestrial civilization. And you might say, well, where in the world does this come from? Um, well, actually, it comes from medieval art. Um, there's some Renaissance art, uh, which is uh, in public view in Europe, that have pictures of the nativity scene, you know, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. But in the background of these pictures— is what appears to be a UFO. Um, there's a famous one uh, in the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence, Italy, in the Hall of Hercules there. Uh, today it's called Madonna of the UFO or Madonna of the Flying Saucer, but it's actually called Madonna and Child with Infant St. John. It's a 16th century painting whose painter is unknown. And behind the head of Madonna, there is an elliptical object seen in the background. It's in the sky. And it looks very modern in terms of depictions relative to UFOs, you know, that are flying disks. But uh, it's interesting that this elliptical object has little golden rays emanating from it, which is not something that we typically associate with, you know, UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomena today. So 
the question is, you know, you look at it and say, whoa, it, it kind of does look like a flying saucer in the background. What is that? And, you know, some people say, well, if we interpret it, uh, it's probably an angel maybe, or maybe it is the glory of the Lord shown as a, you know, glowing disc with rays emanating from it. I mean, I don't know what the glory of the Lord looks like. Uh, and then, you know, there are other uh, depictions at, uh, in the 1350, there was a, a public, uh, there was a, uh, a mural put up in 1350, and it's in the uh, uh, Visoki Dekani Monastery uh, near Deshan Kosovo, which is just a little bit south of modern-day Serbia and old Yugoslavia. And there's a depiction there on the wall. It's called the Crucifixion of Christ, and uh, it's it hung up behind the altar, uh, the main altar in the monastery itself. And if you take a look at it, you know you got the cruc- the cross in the center, and on the left and the right, in the upper left and upper right hand corner, there are these really two odd looking objects, and they they're, they're like balls. Uh, they have little tails on them. They look like they're 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 shooting stars essentially moving across the sky. But inside of each of those balls is a clearly visible pilot. It's a humanoid-type creature, and it's flying across the sky in both cases. And it's weird. So, you know, are these supposed to be flying saucers? Well, first off, this has to do with the crucifixion. But, you know, here we go, flying saucers at the time of Jesus, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, I don't know how to interpret that picture or, you know, even the other one mentioned earlier in Italy. But they are very, very strange, and this sometimes leads people to this question, you know, that uh, maybe this had something to do with uh, uh, the birth of Jesus. Maybe they were angels. Maybe they were UFOs. We simply don't know. Uh, in the latter case, the crucifixion seen in Kosovo, uh, the fact of the matter is probably the sun and the moon. Those are my interpretations of it because, you know, we hear about the darkening uh, at the time of the crucifixion, the question is, was that an eclipse? And, of course, eclipses involve the sun and the moon, the moon passing over the face of the sun and making the earth dark at that time. And, so, and of course, Carl, you know, when you talk about these various uh, images that you see that we can interpret from our point of view in our time as uh, possibly images of flying saucers or UFOs or however we want to designate them, a lot of these things were when angels were depicted by the artists back at that time, they were sort of like uh, signs or symbols that were standardized and were used by various artists to designate something. They didn't necessarily have to be something that the artist himself had seen or, uh, you know, was familiar with. It was just something that would indicate, you know, a, a glow above a, a head or a mm-hmm. ring around and so forth would indicate an angel and that sure. kind of thing. So uh, those yeah. are those are some of the explanations. That and there, there are many variations of art styles, too, as the centuries have gone by. You know, you get all different types of artistic styles. And, you know, sometimes they just made things look very human or very animal or very strange. Uh, you know, I'm not an art historian, so I really can't speak to that. But uh, you're, you're right. I mean, this is just the way they depict certain things. Uh, you know, take a look at a Picasso sometime, how he, how he depicts the human form. We wouldn't want to look at a Picasso and say, oh, that's what humans look like in the 1900s. <laughs> Not by a long shot. <laughs> by a long shot. <laughs> exactly. 
But uh, okay, go ahead. Uh, it's interesting that uh, we have all of these. Good. And yeah, and you know, it's interesting the the the, uh, uh, the concept of a flying saucer really didn't enter the public uh, era of today until around 1947. There was a pilot uh, by the name of Kenneth Arnold happened to be flying his airplane over the state of Washington. And he reported seeing these flying discs. And that's where it really started coming into the public arena, this UFO phenomenon. You know, we don't want to forget Roswell, New Mexico either. The the crash landing supposedly of a flying saucer down there. You know, this stuff's still quite a mystery to most of us today. And, you know, we hear about the hush up, hush hush up of the, uh, of the government and they've, you know, kind of blocked us from view. And now that we have bodies of aliens at uh, the air force uh, uh, base at that Wright Patterson, Dayton, Ohio, you know, it's all hidden. <laughs> when when my, my wife and I were out in uh, Idaho, uh, this was back in the 19, early, about the mid 1960s, 1966, uh, the, of course, uh, people were out there were familiar with the, what you just talked about, the report by the pilot out there seeing those things in Washington. It was near, you know, Idaho, right near the, mm-hmm. near the border and so forth. And uh, at any rate, at the time we were there, uh, there were reports, uh, I think, slightly before we had gotten there, but uh, while we were there also. And what people were doing, a lot of, a lot of it was being done by a bunch of high school kids. They were taking uh, small bags and they would dye them different colors, and somehow or another they would uh, they would attach uh, like in a little container, a little paper cup or something, cupcake cup or something like that, a candle, and that candle mm. would heat the air into the paper bag. You know, they would be small paper bags, and they would turn these loose. Yeah. Of course, a dangerous thing to do out in, out, in, out in that area. <laughs> but, I mean, people would see these things, and then they would report, you know, some kind of a strange object in the sky. Sure. And so, yeah. you see. and that's still done today. And let's admit people are probably seeing some very unusual things. You know, one of the reasons you asked me to talk about this subject is because I've had a little bit of experience seeing weird things in the sky, too. But let me just say one or two things quickly about the star of Bethlehem, Bethlehem in relation to an alien spaceship. Uh, I'm really skeptical of that as an explanation uh, because, you know, honestly, from my perspective, knowing what I know about the UFO phenomenon and I've had, like I say, some experiences, there just really isn't any physical evidence. And the fact that uh, there's alien civilizations coming to our world from someplace in outer space is really improbable, vanishingly small, almost to the point of being impossible, I would say. And I'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but the idea that you know we're being visited by alien life forms really forces you to ask the question, well, where are they from and how did they get here? Because the distances between the stars are vast. You know, as an astronomer, that's something I know a lot about. And, you know, the nearest stars are, you know, other than the sun, are are light years away. And if you were to travel at the speed of light, which you simply cannot do, uh, the fact of the matter is it would take years, decades, centuries perhaps to get here. And then there's the other question of, you know, if they are there, there are other civilizations, then where are they? Where are they? You know, we I've been part of a... uh, uh, a radio astronomy research group for many years, and we have been actually looking for signals from outer space uh, using large uh, radio telescopes here in the uh, U.S. and across the world. 
And we're examining uh, data from outer space, looking for intelligent signs of, uh, of life. Nothing. I mean, it's nothing. It's not like we listen at one frequency. We listen to millions of frequencies almost simultaneously and scan an entire spectrum. And we listen and we interpret. And there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of computers running right now. That's a lot of times people have these home computers that, you know, they run these little citizen science research projects in the background. We've got computers with tremendous computing power looking at this information and we find nothing. It's crickets. I mean, look at the signature we're casting out into space. I mean, even now, the voice that you're hearing, these radio waves emanating from this radio station are heading out into outer space. It's our calling card to the universe. And we're a very noisy planet. Let me tell you, we've got radio transmitters all over the place. We've got TV transmitters. You know, everybody, you know, is using electrical means of communications today. We've got radar systems out there that are the most powerful uh, transmitting systems on Earth today. And boom, you know, it's our calling card to the universe. And yet, I think other advanced technological civilizations would have the same kind of a signature, and they're just not there. That's that's true. I've always wondered about that myself. I mean, the fact is, is that with all of our listening devices, you think we pick up something somewhere because we could be picking up signals that could have started out, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, but we would still pick them up. Yep. There would be something coming. So, yeah, it is something we will consider. But at any rate, we're going to come up here on a break and uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this Uh about the fact that the universe is of huge size and uh, there may be, you know, something that, uh, that, that can give us an idea of if it would be possible for something like this to be going on. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Make plans now. Join Catholic Spirit Radio for a Lenten pilgrimage on Saturday, March 12th. The one-day bus trip will take us to visit the community of St. John in Princeville for a short retreat. Then on to Peoria to visit the Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen tomb at the cathedral and also the Sheen Museum for a tour and a talk. Register by February 19th or better yet by the 7th for an early bird discount. Go to CatholicSpiritRadio.com or call 217-855-4418. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. I'm here with Carl Winning. And uh, Carl and I have been talking about the uh, Star of Bethlehem the last few programs we talked about that. And we're talking about the possibility of the Star of Bethlehem and other things like it being explained uh, by the idea of an advanced civilization being uh, visiting the earth or being from somewhere back at an earlier time. And could that be an explanation? There are many people who put forth these explanations, not only for the Star of Bethlehem and for godly things, but for a lot of the strange things that we find are around the world from the past, such as the pyramids in Egypt and some of those in South America and some of the Indian mounds and other things. They claim that it's possible that we were visited by alien civilizations in the past. And so we feel that it is is uh, valid to uh, field this question and, and check it out. And we've been talking about that, and it's been very, very interesting. And uh, we finish up with the, what we were talking about 
the fact that uh, Carl was talking about listening uh, through radio uh, signals and, and so forth to hear if there has been anything coming from any of the stars or some point in space. And uh, so far, all the listening that we have uh, scientifically set up around the world really has not picked up anything yet. So it makes you wonder if there are aliens, as Carl said, where are they? And uh, so uh, it's sort of uh, the idea, it's an intriguing question. And uh, there are other people that insist that Jesus could have been a being from another world. And how do we deal, Carl, with that possibility that uh, was Jesus in effect? It sounds strange for me to say it, but, you know, was Jesus a space alien? Is it possible that Jesus was some kind of a being from another world? And because of that, the advanced technology that he would be uh, able to command would have given people the idea that there was something supernatural all about this? And, you know, is that a possible explanation? Well, you ask a good question that led into that. And it is, how do we deal with this? And I, I think the word is skepticism. That is something that we all have to be it's skeptical. Uh, a lot of people claim that there's these you know, ancient civilizations out there. You know, you just need to watch the History Channel sometime. Uh, from time to time, they've had a guy, Eric von Daniken, a German guy who— uh, just a really a strong supporter or supporter of ancient aliens. Uh, there's that wild hired uh, guy uh, uh, by name of uh, Giorgio Sakalas. Uh, you know, both these guys believe in ancient aliens, and so it's an accepted given to them. It's just simply accepted. So everything we see, we're going to interpret in light of ancient aliens. There's nothing that we could do. We couldn't have built Stonehenge. We couldn't have built the great uh, Mayan and uh, Aztec and, you know, Toltec, Olmec monuments by ourselves as humans. We had to have aliens to help us. You know, that's a a wild claim, and all that stuff has to be treated skeptically. And so how you deal with it is with skepticism. You ask the tough questions. So was Jesus a space alien? Was he really from another world? Well, you know, if you're you're wild-eyed and you're you're, you're, you're just crazy about this, you, you ask things such as that, and then you give yourselves your answer. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, if it's not of his world, then he must have been an alien, maybe came from outer space. And let's not forget, they'll say this too, what happened at the last day? Jesus ascended into outer space. He ascended into the heavens. Well, obviously, he's going back home. He's a space alien. So, you know, you can interpret things any way you want. But you have to ask the obvious questions. How did Jesus achieve this? I mean, you know, if he was a creature from some outside world, he had to have access to an anti-gravity machine. Well, that doesn't even exist. Uh, You know, look at all the miracles of the food. Did he have a food replicator? Hmm. I don't know about that. We can't do that. It's great for Star Trek, but doesn't seem like we have food replicators today. And, and look at the, all the cures and the healings and things of that fashion. I mean, he had to have, a, uh, have access to medical skills that are beyond any creature's ability to be able to do things without technology. You know, so much of our medicine today is based on technology. And where is all this technology that Jesus had? You know, is it in himself? Is this pers- is it in his person? Well, if it's in his person— then that makes me believe he's more godlike than he's physic- than he's uh, some sort of a physical being from a- another planet somewhere. 
So, you know, you can conclude all sorts of crazy things if you want, but again, you've got to be skeptical. And you can always do this too. Well, you know, they're they're time travelers that come from the distant future. You know, that is something without constraints. It's just kind of like the Shekinah glory explanation of the Star of Bethlehem. If there are no constraints, it's not a good conclusion to say that had to be it because you just don't know. Aliens from the future will always appear godlike to us if they've got that kind of advanced technology. So, you know, when you take a look at the, biblical, the biblical scriptures too, which document the the story of the life of Christ, you know, the, the the gospel writers have made every effort to make it clear that Jesus was a divine person, that he was a God man, that he was born of a woman under the laws, as it says in Galatians four four. You know, they stress the idea that Jesus was human and came into this world to die for our sins. And as a human, he paid the price with the crucifixion. And as a God, he also made it possible for us to be redeemed for our sins because an infinite sacrifice is needed to satisfy the infinite transgressions that we consider sin against God. And that's who he is. He's a God-man. That's who Christ is. And he's not an alien from another world. He is the Word made flesh, as John told us. And Jesus himself said it, I and the Father am one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is one with God and not a space alien. That's my response. Well, I think that that would be a good response. The fact is, is if you look at everything in the biblical history uh, of Jesus and all of the explanations, the fact that he was born of a woman and raised as a child and that he understood Jewish law and was taught uh, in synagogue and all of those things, uh, and the, the fact that he traveled with the apostles and the way he traveled along the way. and so None of it really fits in with an idea that he is some alien that came from outer space. Why would some alien from outer space who could had access to a spaceship or uh, anti-gravity devices and some means of traveling, go through all of this and uh, suffer on a cross and die and so forth and every in you know in order what, what would he be trying to accomplish? Yeah, that's true. It, right. it seems very strange to me. Although and, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Lynn. And since Scotty didn't beam him up, that leaves us still with the question: Who was he? Yep. That's true. Well, we're always asking that, that's for yeah. sure. Who was he? I mean, he asked that of his own disciples, who do you, you say, say that I am? am? So that's true. And that's a very big and broad question, and the answer is more than something specific. I think he meant it very broadly. So uh, at any rate, is, isn't uh, life in the universe, though, Carl, you're talking about, we've listened out there, and we never hear these other civilizations and yet there are so many stars out there, and we know now that there are many stars with planets, and uh, even though they are very, very far away, and it's not likely that we can visit those in any way, at least that we know of, uh, isn't it possible that there is a, you know, a lot of life in the universe, and uh, wouldn't that be possible for there to be populations on other stars, and not stars, but at least other planets circling stars? Uh, that, that's a great question. It really is. And it, it, again, it gives us an opportunity to look at this question about remaining skeptical. <clears throat> you know, there's something that <clears throat> was put out in 1961 uh, called the Drake Equation. And uh, this Drake Equation is a way of looking at how many intelligent 
communicating civilizations are out there in the cosmos based upon things like, you know, the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And if you take a look at that, that number, putting in what we know today about the chances of life and so on, we come up with a prodigiously large number. It's mind-boggling. But let me go through the equation with you real quickly. First off, we know there's about 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. Okay, nobody's ever counted them, but we make mass estimates by looking at what we call rotation curves of the galaxy. So they're estimates. And if you put that information into it, the first thing you have to take a look at into this equation is this concept about the rate of uh, star formation in our galaxy. Because stars live out their lives. You know, they're born, they die, just like people do. And that formation rate and their, 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 the way they end their lives really does affect whether or not there might be civilizations around. So let me go ahead and talk about these factors real quick. So the rate of star formation counts. The fraction of those stars that have planets. And today we believe it's a fairly good number of stars have planets percentage-wise. And then the average number of planets that might support life that surround a star. You know, there's this Goldilocks zone. You get too close to a star, it's too hot. You get too far away from the star, it's too cold. But you get in the middle, it's just right. Uh, and then you have to ask the question, well, what fraction of those um, the planets that are in these Goldilocks zones actually have a possibility of developing life. What is the fraction of those that do? And then what's the fraction of those that develops intelligent life? I mean, you know, we could talk about molds and amoebas and funguses, but, uh, you know, those are not likely going to be flying saucers around the world and uh, sending out radio waves across interstellar space. And uh, so what about those who... who desire to reveal their existence via radio signal released to the universe. You know, there might be technologically advanced civilizations and say, uh, we don't want to announce our presence here because we could become the next you know, chicken filet dinner here. Uh, we might be food for alien species, or maybe they'll come to our planet and they'll rob us of, of, of this, that, or the other thing. Or maybe they'll try to enslave us. You know, maybe they really do want to protect themselves. I mean, what's going to happen if we're visited by aliens someday, you know, and, you know, you see all the uh, Independence Day type movies, <laughs> you <Yes>. wonder. Uh, <laughs> so if you put all those numbers together and, and consider the lifetime of each civilization, you know, how long does it survive? Does it survive for a very short time, then it blows itself up in nuclear bombs, or does it last for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? Those are all things that go into this thing called the Drake Equation. And I've, the best numbers I have seen, the best number I have seen is this. The value of N, the number of intelligent civilizations capable and willing to communicate with us in the present universe as we now know it today, is a mind-boggling 15 million civilizations. Wow. 15? 15, 15 million civilizations given what we think we know. Huh. And this is a very good question to ask. And this is the question I've asked repeatedly in regards to this question. If they are there, where are they? I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical. Again, my computer runs it all the time. I'd take my computer this morning and shut it down because it spent last night cranking out uh, calculations to, to see if we're being, you know, receiving radio transmissions from outer space. My computer runs that in the background all the time. <laughs> nothing. Simply nothing. And, you know, the biggest problem is, the, the biggest problem with that number is that it's pure speculation. And, you know, the question is how many, this is the, the real crooks of the question, how many of these 
planets that are in the Goldilocks zones develop life. The question that really is screaming out is, how is life formed? We don't know. We don't have the faintest idea. Uh, we've heard about some of these experiments of taking carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen and putting them in a tube and discharging a lightning spark through it, the old you know Urey experiment from the 1950s, and develop amino acids, and then these amino acids would sometimes get together, form RNA or DNA, and then form into molecular chains and become life and so on and so forth. We don't know. We simply don't know what is happening when it comes to the formation of life. We can't even define life. No, we, we can't. You know, you say, well, you define life, define this, define that, define that. Then you ask the question, is virus alive or not? Well, it, it's a, isn't a virus alive? I mean, it does everything we think that living things should. But here's another question. Is fire alive? It consumes material. It reproduces. It, you know, uses oxygen. It changes. I mean, yeah, right. it lives, it dies, you know. It, 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 we just don't even know what life is, let alone to say how it comes into being. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, you know, it could be that there is a single creation of life and that it's on Earth. And we could be the only living material in the entire universe. I don't believe, from my perspective as a scientist and as a theologian, if I can wear both hats for a second, that life just simply comes from non-life. There's something different. You can't just take carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen and put them together and expect it to be a life form. I mean, the human body is 65% mass by mass oxygen, 18.5% carbon, 10% hydrogen, nitrogen is 3.2%, calcium 1.5%, and so on. And these don't produce souls. They don't present produce consciousness. They don't produce reason. And, and that was such a hackneyed formula for so long. I remember, you know, you read so many science fiction books or even books just, you know, explaining the universe and so forth. And it always was this, you know, there were warm seas and there was uh, the primeval ooze and there were all these chemicals in the primeval ooze and the sun shone on it. And over time, they uh, transmogrified into, transformed themselves into life. And, you know, it was like this was bound to happen. But, of course, <laughs> nobody could ever reproduce it in any kind no. of an experiment. No. It could never be done in the laboratory. And I, and I think those have sort of fallen away by now because yeah. it, just is, it just isn't that simple. Yeah. There is one thing that we can say, and this is true on the basis of scientific observation. Life only comes from life. Right. We exist. We are living forms. This is what's called the Kalam argument. It's a variation of what's called the Kalam argument. Anything that had a beginning had to not exist prior to existing. And the only way things that can exist that did not previously exist is if, if there was a creator. And that creator is what we call God. It is the uncaused cause. And life is the same way. Life has to come from life. And the only life that we know in the universe that exists by nature of its existence itself, that its necessary being, is God. And that is what I see, that we share in the life of God. And that's what is infused into our, our bodies. Just like with Adam and Eve, you know, there were bodies, and then he breathes the spirit of life into them. Take that story as you will. 
But I think the, the essence is the truth, is that, that life comes from God, not the soil. And then there are so many, it's so easy to attribute to things, things that are really not there because you have some kind of a theory pre-existing in your mind. I remember, remember the case of the sea land, the fish that was, oh, yeah, yeah. and this fish that supposedly was extinct was an explanation of how creatures from the sea crawled up on land because the fish had fins and so yes. forth that looked like they could very easily become appendages. And so, therefore, this fish learned to crawl up on land, and it was one of the first land creatures, and eventually it would find a way to breathe the air instead of the water and so forth. And then, lo and behold, <laughs> they, they, were, <laughs> they were doing some experiments and so forth with very, very deep nets, and what did they do? They pulled up a sea land. They pulled it up a sea land. And they found out that it's, it's yeah. actually a bottom feeder that lives at great, great depths. <laughs> it has nothing to do with land, and the fins are much more adapted to swimming around down in the deep ocean. I remember you know? it well. Off the coast of Spain is where they picked that one, exactly. the first one up, and they've gotten more right. since. And then later they found out that actually native fishermen in some of those areas had been catching them for years. Yep, they had. <laughs> So it's easy to do that. At any rate, we're going to have to take a break here. It's really interesting talking about this. There are some other things that we will want to consider as we go along. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Some of you may already be done with the Christmas season, but not so in the holy family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. On the 40th day after Christmas Day, that is on February 2nd, is the celebration of Candlemas. On this day, Mary, the mother of Jesus, presents her 40-day-old baby Jesus, the light of the world, in the temple. This day also marks her ritual purification in accordance with Jewish laws. Won't you, like Simon, be in the temple to welcome the light of the world into your life? Join fellow Catholics at the Misa Cantata, a Sanghai Mass, in the traditional Latin form in the Church of the Holy Rosary Shrine at La Salle, Illinois, on Wednesday, February 2nd at 6.30 p.m. Bring along candles to be blessed so you could light them to honor the infant Christ child throughout the year. Holy Mass will be followed by refreshments in the shrine basement. The light of Christ has come into the world. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're having a very, very interesting conversation uh, about the possibility of uh, the Star of Bethlehem and some of the attributes of uh, our religion uh, possibly being explained by a phenomena that caused by an advanced uh, civilization that could have visited the Earth from uh, outer, elsewhere. Uh, non-earthly non existence, and uh, there are a lot of people who take that as an explanation. And for the most part, uh, we've been ruling that out, I think, or at least being very, very skeptical and asking and demanding, and we should, and so should everyone, uh, for a, a better, more uh, evident uh, explanation for these things. And uh, it, that is something that is necessary. And the fact that there are plain, ordinary explanations that already do exist that, that fit the evidence a, a lot better. 
So it brings me to this question then, uh, you know, we have so much about UFOs today, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, or if you want, unidentified flying objects, that kind of thing. So uh, in other words, if we make all these conclusions, uh, then is it the, the fact that uh, unidentified flying objects don't exist, Carl? It's a good question. And UFOs do exist. UFOs do exist? They do exist. The question is, what do you mean by UFO? Uh, unidentified flying objects is traditionally what they were called, UFOs. Today, unidentified aerial phenomena is another name. Uh, they, they're clearly there. There are things that are out there. The things I have seen, I cannot explain. And, uh, you know, that's really what we're at. So, uh, you know, do ex UFOs exist? Absolutely. But we want to be very careful about saying what they actually are. So, yes, UFOs exist. In other words, if, if I'm getting this right, then it's the fact that many of us, uh, including you and lots of see things that we can't identify. Yeah. And they are seen in the sky. Yeah. Or, therefore, they are flying objects, at least to our perception. And so we are seeing unidentified flying objects. And there are enough people all over the world who see these things. And it'd be pretty hard to deny then that the fact is they're there. That's right. But and the fact is we don't really know what they are. Right. And, you know, what's even more interesting, and I kind of pay attention to this area too, is people are, every you know, the, the cell phone is ubiquitous today, right? Every cell phone's got a camera. I have been seeing video day after day because I pay attention to this stuff of people saying that they're seeing objects flying around in the sky. And you know, a lot of times I'm going like, uh, wait a minute, people, that's glare from a uh, internal reflection. Uh, you're, you're inside of a building. I saw, well, let's get this way. I saw a, a, a video of flying saucers over New York last week. And somebody was inside of a high rise and there were bright lights up behind this photographer and was videotaping. And as we were videotaping, was getting reflections of the lights behind him up on the ceiling off the mirror and off the glass in front of them and thought that those are flying saucers. So you got to be really careful. But there are stuff, there's things out there which are really inexplicable. And, you know, the Air Force admitted it recently that there are unidentified aerial phenomena out there. We just don't know what to think. There was a case just a few months ago, uh, maybe a year ago, out on San Diego, off the coast, of these unidentified aerial phenomena visiting with a couple of our Navy ships. And, you know, they've got good evidence that something's flying around out there, but nobody knows what it is. And so. around one of our uh, flat tops. Uh, yeah, aircraft yeah. carrier. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I have plenty of visitors, you know, over the years at the planetarium who come in and tell me about stuff like this. I've had people who have gotten a hold of me. And um, if you want, I'll, I'll give you a, a good UFO story. We do, and I yes. can tell you today, it's uh, it's one of the things that's most intrigued me since uh, my time. I came to this community in 1978 after I finished my degree in astronomy up at Ohio, uh, Michigan State University, and uh, and then also prior to that, Ohio State. But when I came here, it was probably uh, the spring in 1980, and um, I always had my public information out there you could easily contact me and i one morning get this this frantic phone call from my mother and she says uh, uh, my 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 son and 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 his girlfriend they 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 saw it okay calm down calm down saw what they saw something up in the sky over here north meadow village you know 
up north of normal. That's where they saw it. It was up there, up there in the air. And I said, oh, okay. Well, what did they see? Well, I want you to talk to them because they both saw it, and they saw it over two nights. They saw it on Friday night, and they saw it on Saturday night. This was Sunday morning. I said, okay, well, she seemed pretty convinced that uh, her son and uh, the the daughter, uh, future daughter-in-law, evidently uh, saw something in the sky. So I sent over there, went over there, and visited with them that evening. And we sat outside uh, in a van in the same place where they were sitting in the last couple of nights and seeing this phenomenon. And what were they seeing? They saw a bright light, kind of disc-shaped object, in the western sky. And there was a red dot that was shooting out to the south and go back in. It shoot out to the south, go back in. Shoot out to the south and go back in. And they're watching it like, what's that? And all of a sudden, they said, it came at them. It just zoomed up to them. It got real big. And they said, suddenly, it's, they heard this terrible piercing sound. And it's though somebody, and this is their words, used an ice pick and was stabbing him in the eye with the ice pick. And they were terrified. And they ran into the house. And the, the boy was so afraid, the son was so afraid, uh, that he refused to go back outside again and take a look. It absolutely wouldn't do it petrified well you know this this again happened the next night because they didn't think this would ever happen again and second night there it was and they saw it and to make a long story short they thought it was coming back again the next night so that's why i was invited out to 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 look at it with them and they sat down i asked them you know using you know techniques to show they were telling me the same story i separated them i asked them to give me a verbal description i gave them time to write a, a, a written description for me and i collected all this up they drew pictures and stuff like that and i brought it back together and compared it my golly it's consistent they're all telling the same thing and so i was frantically begged for an explanation for what they were seeing and i said well i, I don't know i it's weird was it ufo yeah obviously it's a ufo but i don't know what that means it's just something that's in the sky and it's flying, I guess. It's unidentified. So, yeah, it's a UFO. Well, what is it? Can you tell us? We need to know. And I said, well, I do have a few connections. Um, Center for UFO Studies up in Evanston, Illinois. I know some people up there. Let me put in a phone call. On Monday morning, I'll put in a phone call. So I put in a phone call and uh, on that Monday morning. And I talked to somebody at Evanston, and they said, well, you need to talk with Steve. I said, okay. Steve's in Florida. Steve's got a day job, but he deals with that sort of thing. I'm going, okay, deals with that sort of thing. Interesting. So that evening, I get a hold of Steve over the phone. We talk for a little while, give him the whole rundown. He asked me to go ahead and send him the, the drawings, the writings, you know, tell me, you know, in my own words what happened and so on. And in the end, he says, well, thank you very much. I appreciate the report. And I said, whoa, whoa Steve, Steve, wait a minute, wait a minute. People at Evanston said you deal with that sort of thing. What did they mean by that? He says, Carl, do you think this observation is unique? I said, I don't know. I've never heard of such a thing. He says, it's not unique. It's like the fifth report I got this week. Same identical thing. And it's an arch that goes roughly from Iowa down through Illinois, down into Florida. And it said, it's just, it's not identical. Everywhere is the same. Okay. What am I supposed to say to the parents? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. So there are weird things sometimes happening out there. Um, and that, that's one that really stands out in my mind. I have seen the panic of people 
this this is the thing. You know, one morning I got a phone call from someone who just came into a a, a job here in town. They they just came into their job, and the 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 fellow workers of the job at that job site were so concerned with the panic and the fear of this person who saw a flying saucer rising out of a farm pond on her way to work that morning that they had to talk with me. And I have seen panic and fear. And let me tell you, that was as original. It's as real as it gets. And I don't know what to tell these people. They're seeing something. I mean, it's not a flying cow. Uh, yeah. They describe it very clearly as a flying disc or something like that. But even when I was younger, I mean, personally, I've seen the flying discs myself. But today, even to this day, don't say what they are because I don't know. So, you know, when I was 19 years old, I was, this is the last time, so to speak, that I saw a flying saucer. I have seen flying saucers. Being an astronomer type, I tend to spend a lot of time outside. And I have seen the flying discs. And one night, there was a disc that came up out of where I lived in Ohio at that time. Uh, there was a disc that came uh, from the north, and I thought it was an airplane with this landing lights on going to an airport not far away. I didn't pay much attention to it. And later, it gets bigger, and it gets brighter and bigger and brighter. And then clearly, after a while, it turns out to be a disc. And I'm getting like, uh, 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 whoa, this is kind of scary because I'm out by myself in the middle of the night in my parents' home, and I'm in the backyard. So I'm going to go inside. I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable with this. And then it gets up close overhead, and it stands still. And I'm panicking at this time. I try to get into the back door. My dad had locked the door. So I had to go <laughs> oh, around the wow. side of the house to the front door to get in. And this disc just hovered there, and I was, like, frantic. And all of a sudden, it's like it hit me. Don't be afraid. And suddenly, I stopped being afraid. I just looked up. Whew, gone. Shot up into the sky, vanished like a point of light into the distance. What was it? I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know what to say. I just know it's a UFO. So people have this. I've had lots of people who've talked with me over the years who've had these kind of experiences. And I don't honestly know what to tell you. As a scientist, I have to remain skeptical. I really do. Unless they, until the jury you know, comes back in with all the evidence and makes that decision, there's nothing we can really say. So, yeah, that's that's amazing. And, you know, I could go on and on with stories. I, I uh, did some storytelling a while back and ran for about two hours telling flying saucer stories because I know a lot of them from the experiences I've had with people. But, you know, one one I want to point out to you, that there are things in the sky that really are a bit weird. You might remember Shakespeare's Hamlet where we hear the words, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And that's very true. I personally knew Alan Hynek, Dr. J. Alan Hynek. Okay, you say, well, how did you know J. Allen Hynek? Okay, well, believe it or not, he was the chairman of the, phys the astronomy department at Ohio State just before I got there. So from as time went on over the years, Alan Hynek would come back to Columbus, and I had a chance to spend some time with him because I had a faculty friend who I worked for, and we happened to go out with Dr. Alan Hynek for a few dinners. And so as a result, I had a chance to do one-on-one -on -one conversations with a guy who headed the U.S. Air Force Project Blue Book. You know, we, we know about this guy. And I asked him one evening, I said, Dr. Hunnick, may I, may I just share an observation with you? Uh, sure, that'd be fine. And so I tell him a story about when I was a youngster, probably about 12 years of age. I was looking through a telescope and saw some of the most unusual things. And one of them was like a moon 
and it was kind of like a green-gray moon. And it had large craters on it in comparison to the side. It couldn't have been the moon. And it didn't hit me until a little bit later on that this is kind of bizarre because if it was big enough to fill in, fill the eyepiece of that telescope, which I had at the time, it would have to be at least a half a degree across in the sky, and there was no such thing there. You couldn't see anything in the sky. And what hit me again later on was that that telescope remained stationary, and I never had to track the object. You observe something for a few minutes, it moves out of the eyepiece because of the rotation of the Earth. I didn't know what it was. Well, a few minutes later, we get bored and turn it to another part of the sky. And we, we look into another part of the sky, and all of a sudden, I'm looking, sweeping the sky for stuff because I knew that there are things like nebulas and clusters up there. And so all of a sudden, the eyepiece turns white, just 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 white. And inside the field of view are these black squares, and they're moving across the field of view, and they're linked together by a large link. And they're going across the field of view. And I said, my gosh, Mike, look at this. Mike was my observing friend. He looked at it. He, he, I just saw the last one. I said, what did you see, Mike? He described it. He saw the same thing I did. So I told this story to Alan Hynek. He looks at me and laughs. He says, Carl, you think your story is unique? There it is again. It's not unique. And what is it to this day? I don't know. I can tell you if the eyepiece of that telescope flashed white, that it would have to be something brighter than the moon probably in the sky, and I looked up looking to see what Mike was looking at in the telescope, and it was not there. What was I seeing? Carl, what you reported is not unique. That comes from Alan Hynek. So, yeah, there's a lot of things out there we really don't understand, but I'm not one to rush ahead and say this is what it's got to be. We don't know that. We really don't know that. You know, we got to be like Sherlock Holmes until we can identify and eliminate any possibility, every possibility, but one, that that is the solution. But we can't do that at this point. We don't have enough evidence. There are so many things that, uh, you know, it could be explanations. Uh, as you say, we don't know. There could be forms of energy we're not quite familiar with. Uh, I think there is, there has been identified, hasn't there, Carl, uh, that actually in the earth where there are heavy deposits of quartz along certain places, that uh, there can be an electrical phenomenon, phenomena because of that, that will, uh, it might be sort of like one of these quartz, uh, uh, I forget what they call it, that where you rub quartz against a uh, metal that's uh, like three different alloys, it will cause, uh, you know, electricity to flow and so forth. Mm. Personally, and, I'm not familiar with that, no. Yeah, I've, I've uh, yeah, I think I was reading, uh, Isaac mm -hmm. Asimov I had written an article on it uh, that this one man was, uh, sort of vilified by his friends and for reporting a phenomena like this. And then later on, it was found out to be an electrical phenomena, this rare but can occur on Earth, and it creates a, a sort of light that travels along the quartz vein. Yeah, and, that uh, I, I don't know about. Yeah, that. I just so, remember that Isaac Asimov was a yeah. great science fiction writer. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was a great science. But he, in this case, he was simply writing one of his little articles sure. explaining, you know, that, that this uh, this was a phenomenon that happened. But what I'm pointing out here is is that there are a lot of things we may not know about that could be explained sure. if we find out more information. So sure. we can't just jump to a conclusion. We cannot. And uh, that is is something that, you know to keep in mind. There are other things too that. Uh, I would like to get to something. We're starting to run out of time. I know Lynn has some information. Uh, have you ever heard of the Nephilim? Uh, 
Nephilim? The giant people. These are people. Oh, the giant people. You know, from Genesis. From okay. Genesis oh, yeah, yeah. I so just never heard the name. Yeah, people uh, explain concept, things. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we'll have time to go into it. We but probably won't. Probably don't right now. No. But we might, we'll might talk, talk about, about that sometime. Uh, these were supposedly uh, creatures that were caused by human uh, women somehow having uh, relations with uh, these either fallen angels or some type of giants. Yes, yes, I'm very And they have found uh, in the past, yeah, there's reports of finding uh, giant skeletons of uh, 9 to 11 feet in length and so forth that are humanoid and that kind of thing and not being able to explain what they are. We just really can't get into it now, but there are a lot of various things uh, that, that can be explained. But the point is, is that what Carl, I think, is trying to emphasize and we're trying to emphasize here is that, yes, when people see things in the sky and so forth, they're not hallucinating. Uh, we don't certainly say that people are reporting uh, falsely or that they don't see something. We all do. The fact is, though, is there's no good explanation for what some of those things are. And it's a little bit too much to jump to the conclusion that there must be flying saucers from the stars and that they must have interfered and helped uh, or, or cause earlier peoples and so forth to report them as gods and that kind of thing. We just don't know. Well said. Well said. So at any rate, uh, we're coming to the end of our program. We're going to have to stop here. So I hope everyone out there enjoyed it. It was very, very interesting. Maybe we can talk about a little bit more in depth uh, about these things sometime. In the meantime, we'll say our closing prayer. St. Michael, Michael, the Archangel, Archangel, defend us in battle. battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God, God rebuke him, him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the, by the power of God, God thrust in the hell Satan and all and evil all spirits, spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. God bless everyone out there. Thank you for listening, and we hopefully will see you next week. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio 